Guys, welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk podcast. We uh, got our butts kicked in today, but uh, in the best way possible, if that makes sense. We're out here at Royal New Kent Golf Club um, in Providence Forge, Virginia. Uh, took a little road trip for Masters Week, Dante, and yes. had ourselves a blast. Had ourselves a day already. We're planning on playing, uh, got what here, Thursday night, about midnight, 1 a.m., and we're going to be playing, we played today, which is Friday, going to do good old 36 tomorrow, and Another 18 on, on Sunday, so four rounds in three days. So And then watch the leaders come down home exactly. the stretch on the Masters on Sunday. You really can't, can't beat it. Nope. Well, uh, we're here with Tim MacArthur. Tim, you were a vital part in getting us here and helping us set up the entire weekend. Uh, it was seriously incredible what you've done for us to help us through this uh, full trip for us. So I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Uh, Tim, you guys have an incredible property here. Well, thank you. Uh, truly, truly appreciate you all being here uh, in – enjoying uh getting to get some expertise from you all of of you know what we're doing well and what we can improve uh so it's it's always good to to get some fresh faces in here that haven't seen the property before yeah it's uh it's been on dante radar for a while um it hit uh something that i don't think i've ever seen before and it's just that like larger than life feeling on a golf course when you the minute you leave the first tee, you're kind of engulfed in the entire property and forget the context around you. There's not too many golf courses that you step on that really accomplish that in the grand fashion that you do here at Royal New Kent. There was like multiple times we're on the property, out on the course, and I didn't know what state I was in. At one point, I felt like I was in the pines of Florida or the pines of North Carolina, or where there's parts I thought I was like, I could walk two steps and I'd be on the beach. I mean, it was just. <laughs> It was just incredible to see, and it just, when you're in kind of like southern Virginia, like in the middle of Williamsburg and, and Richmond, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think of a property just being placed right there. So it, it, it was wild. Like Dalton said, I, it came on my radar a while ago. I mean, from him and I, it was about me five hours, about you three and a half mm -hmm. hours. So easy drive, no problem. I said, we have to get down there. And I actually had a few buddies of mine that have already played it maybe about a couple weeks ago or about a month ago. And he said, he goes, if it was an hour away from me, I would join as a member in a millisecond. And so, I mean, it was, it was a blast. I mean, I'm pumped that we have three more rounds to play <laughs> here, so I can't wait. Well, it, it definitely has a, a unique feel. Um, you know, the, we, we, we play up our tagline, Golf Ireland in Virginia, um, and, and it, and it really we play that up because it is so unique and it has has those uh you know wispy grasses like you'd see in ireland um mike strands did an amazing job with his inspirations of royal county down and valley bunyan from ireland of really making this a unique track um so it's it's pretty special i i really um i was engulfed in it uh right when i had the opportunity to come here and uh a, a good Probably one of the best players in the state of Virginia from an amateur standpoint is one of my really, really close friends. And uh, I said, you know, what do you, what do you think of, uh, of Royal New Kent? And he didn't know I was thinking about coming here. And, and he, he said, well, Tim, he goes, I live about an hour and a half away. And he goes, it's one of the places I would come multiple times a year. He goes, it's that good. I was like, great. I said, by the way, I'm about to uh, be the general manager there. That's awesome. <laughs> it's so. incredible when you when you hear people, and it's not just him that was talking of the property like that. It's folks from you know New Jersey. It's folks mm -hmm. from Northern Pennsylvania. It's really anyone who ends up coming to this place says, 
man, worth the trip times a million. Like, when can I get back? Um, talk about your time when you first started. What year was that? And, you know, where did you come from to leave wherever you were at to come here and be the general manager of the property? Yeah, most definitely. So so in all reality, I'm a, I'm a newbie to rural New Kent from a standpoint of being the general manager. Uh, I got here, it seems like six months to a year, but it was actually January. So I've only been here a couple months. Um, my expertise is, is I spent eight years at Kiowa Island down in South Carolina, lead assistant at the Ocean Course right before I left. Um, I, I went from there to being at Kings Mill Resort in Williamsburg uh, as head golf professional. Uh, uh, very, very excited to host multiple LPGA Tour events while we were at Kings Mill. And, uh, and I had this unique opportunity where I'm, uh, I got introduced to our ownership here at Rural Nuka. And, uh, they 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 enjoyed what they saw. I guess uh, wasn't expecting to leave, but they they I, I fell in love with the property and and they made made it worth uh, my while to come over here and and uh, and I I wanted to build a culture because the course was so so special. I want to bring that Kiowa culture, that Kings Mill culture, to Royal New Kent to be able to design a a feeling of customer service, of attention to detail, and allowing our guests to really see something special, not only on our unique golf course, but also with our customer service that we provide. So For sure, and I'd love for you to dive into that a little more too, because obviously the course does the work for itself, obviously. The, the architecture's there. I, I imagine midsummer, it, this course is just beyond beautiful. Even with the, some of the grass still being dormant out there, we, we found ourselves you know, really enjoying the, the place from a manicure standpoint. Um, you guys have an amazing back patio out here that looks out basically what I would call bluffs of just rolling hills. You know, Talk us through a little bit more of that culture. How do you guys expect in the future to build something extremely special within not only the state but within the country uh, as far as golf course services go? Yeah, you know, most definitely. Uh, so the, 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 the cool thing that, that I've been able to experience in my past is, is Kiowa is very much a destination place. Um, Kings Mill has been a destination place for a long time as well, but – those places are destination type facilities and i see rural new kent as the destination whether it be heading down to pinehurst whether it be heading to williamsburg myrtle beach down to kiowa my goal is to to have you come through and and play around with us not only that is is i do foresee in the hopefully in the near future, building some, uh, getting some cottages or something of that nature, working with some, some locals to, to have golfers come in, stay right here with us as close to our property as possible um, and, and really enjoy what we do. Um, so I do think it's an attention to detail. Um, as many courses as I've gone to and played golf at, it really, the, the, ability to for a person to come up to you pre-round post-round and just feel like hey you know what this person really just cares about me you know that's the the attention to detail that the top end facilities always give you um and that's ultimately what we're trying to do and trying to take it up to another step there's a book that uh is actually really near and dear to me i read it in college it's called raving fans and it talks about customer service and how to go above and beyond. And my first meeting with our entire staff was, 
hey, I, I want you to read this book and understand my method to my madness um, because it really takes our customer service to another level. So that's really what it's about is just really connecting with our guests. And I really don't like using the word customer. I'm more of a guests. These are our guests for the day. And so it's, it's the subtleties that, that really bring people back. Um, and it's a culture. And so that's what we're trying to do. Um, I do think that on the horizon, we may have some pretty special things going on right here at Royal New Kent, just based off some of the conversations I've had. So, Well, that's exciting. I mean, obviously, uh, where you know you do a quick Google search, you're in the top 10 courses in the state. Um, it's not hard to find out how great this course is. Raving reviews, like you mentioned, are all over the place. Um, Take us back, and, and maybe your knowledge you're still learning since you're a little newer to the property. Um, when did Mike Strands come in and do the redesign? And obviously, he's gained a lot of national notoriety uh, with Tobacco Road, with some other courses down the Pinehurst area. Um, what did he do to this course that really maybe brought it back to life? And, and what did you s maybe see or hear that was different before he came in and kind of put his touches on everything? Yeah, so so Mike Strantz originally designed this. Um, he's done seven courses total, as you know. Um, from a standpoint of redesign, it wasn't, he was technically a already had passed away, um, but his people that literally worked the golf course for him mm -hmm. were the people that came in and when we did the ten, $2 million renovation of the greens, uh, some bunkering and drainage specifically, those were the people that came in and, and helped us out. So it was the exact same team that was under Mike when he re when when it first opened in 1997 so it was those same people that saw it touched it made it to what it was they already knew what what was working well what you know what maybe needed to be retouched up and they helped us get it to where it needs to be putting in that two million dollars went into these champion bermuda greens in the summertime they're rolling like 12s minimum they are super speedy um, super smooth. Uh, so Mike Strance is a big, big part of what we do uh, because, you know, it, as you walk our hallway, as you saw, we have his artist uh, artistry up on our walls. He literally would draw, because he was an artist, he would draw out these designs before putting them on, pay, before actually building them in, in person. And I found that just super, super cool. Um, and so those were the things that I, I just grasped onto. And I said, I came in and I've already talked to our ownership of, Hey, why are we not selling these unique items in our pro shop even? Yeah. Oh, well, that's a good question. All right, let's figure out how we need to do it. I said, these, these, these piece of artwork, I said, when people fall in love with the Royal new kit, we could have these in our pro shop for, for sale. Like, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I took a picture. There's something in your uh, – it's more of an oil painting close to it um, in your restaurant area that I took a picture of, sent it to my parents, said, look how amazing this is. Look how cool this is. And it's stuff like that, you know, that the Pinehursts have, the Pebble Beaches have, your, your top-end, top-tier resorts have. And mm -hmm. it's really awesome to see you trying to implement things like that because it's just adding that extra piece of nature. Hey, you can actually take – a piece of Royal New Kent home with you. For sure, for sure. There's there's just so many little subtleties that we that we want to do. Um, you know whether uh, 
the old thing is, oh, well, you know, uh, I've always heard is the, every new place I get to, they're like, well, that's not the way we've, we've done it in the past. Uh, and I'm like, yeah. you're, you're 100% right. <laughs> I'm like, you're, you're 100% right. Like, but that doesn't mean we can't do it in the future. Like I said, you yeah. know, I'm always up for trying new things. Yeah. You know, I want a person if they, uh, with as hard of golf course as we have, if they make a hole in one on one of our par threes, I want them to have something special to go home with. So right now I'm even working on subtle details like that to like, what is it going to be when they, that I'm going to give them as just something that they look at and go, I remember that hole in one, you know, it's the subtle details. um, You know, we've, we've interviewed Matt Janela before too. And he, this is kind of perfect. And what you're saying is, is, you know, the guest aspect of it. And it's always, it's, you're going for the experience. The key word's the experience, right? So you're going to these properties, you're going, you know, you're paying for this, you know, this trip, you're, you're getting away from reality, and you're going, you're like, I want to, maybe you're not going to hit it great or well on the uh, on the course that day or whatnot, but when you walk off 18 and you're walking out of that 19 hole and you're sitting there and you're like, was that, was that well worth the experience? And if the answer is like, absolutely, then you're doing something correct. Exactly. It's, it's all about value. Um, and it's all, and that's all of our society is all about value. You know, uh, I, I remember when I was at Kingsville, I had a member that this guy was, uh, he, he pinched pennies, if you will, but he had plenty of money. And I remember him always, always like nickel and diamond things. But then he went out to Pebble Beach and he, he rolled it like it was nothing. And it was just perceived value. Like he was willing to spend whatever because he was going on this Pebble Beach experience. That's the thing. He saw the value. And that's the the thing I want to make sure that we are providing is I try to put myself in the guest shoes as much as possible anytime I come up and I say, if I was a guest and I was paying XYZ, would I have felt like I received enough value? You know, and that same thing in restaurants that happen all over the country, right? You, you go to a really, really nice restaurant, you pay more, you have a great experience. You're not going to go to a, 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 you know, a smaller restaurant that isn't as good and be like, oh, well, these two compete against each other. No, because you just, you spent more because you were like, wow, this, the service, the, the food, everything went together. And those are the details. It's, I'm a, I'm nothing but a details and customer service person. It's really what it boils down to, yeah, and those I are my hot buttons. Even speaking of details, this morning, you know, uh, we <laughs> we had a late night last night. Um, had to get up pretty early. <laughs> Ran into some issues coming in on the way. Uh, our our ten minute trip actually took thirty minutes. Uh, <laughs> we won't have to go into details about that, but you know, we had nothing in our stomachs. We were busy. We come past. We come up to Nar. I'm like, let's get something to eat. You come in here, you walked in, uh, saw some breakfast items, bacon, egg, and cheese, sausage, egg, and cheese. Yeah, this will be a couple minutes. Okay. Came out, fresh cracked eggs, fresh cheese, fresh cut bacon, fresh sausage, fresh roll. We're like, wait a second. I, mean, just, I, I, I didn't open it till I got no. to the cart, and I, I opened it. I said, this is, like a, this is like what I would make at home. Yeah. It's not, you know, just your, your prepackaged 
crap that you can put. It's it's fresh off the grill. It's fresh out of the fridge. It's it's fresh ingredients, mm -hmm. and it's little details like that that go a long way. It was one of the best sandwiches. Yeah. Now, granted, I was hungry, yes. but it was one of the best sandwiches I've had in, in a in a quick split like that, and it just kind of it falls right into line with what you're talking about. You don't see that often at, at you know establishments where you know you're you're getting a large amount of guests a day, and you know they're going in and putting the time to crack like an egg sandwich for you. Mm -hmm. You know, eggs are quick to cook, but you know, when you're mass producing stuff and you need to feed multiple hundreds of people, you know, they're gonna go buy kind of like the, the, the already prepackaged egg or bacon, egg, and cheese, right? You just throw that, nuke it up, wrap it in some tin foil, and here you're good to go. Not here, I mean, I, I was I was like, whoa, like, oh, I got a fresh, like, like you said, that's something I would make right before I would leave to go for the golf course. Yeah, exactly. As simple as that. Exactly, you know, and, and and our Strands Pub has has done an amazing job since uh, I've been here. I'm I'm very thankful I haven't gained about 15 pounds <laughs> um, because I literally go up to the chef and I say, "Hey, what have I not tried? I want to eat what you haven't, what I haven't eaten before." And so I I've tried everything on the menu, and there's literally, literally nothing on our menu that I want to order. And and that's that says a lot. Um, I I think that. Um, I've, I've talked to our food and beverage manager and I say, Hey, let's, let's try new things, you know, let's do specials, let's do all kinds of different things. And so that's what we're ultimately trying to do is just keep it fresh, keep it, you know, but also make sure that whatever we're doing, we're doing to the best of our abilities. I don't want our focus to get so spread out that we can't actually produce to a very, very high level. So. I love that, man. It's it's very apparent. Uh... Welcome back to the Enjoy the Walk podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if you are a fan of walking the golf course, you probably know who these guys are. True Linkswear out of the uh, West Coast area. Joining us today is Jason Moore. Jason, you've got a ton of background in the footwear industry now, but from what I understand, it didn't start that way. So I'm interested to understand how you got into footwear and how you've built this kind of juggernaut of a footwear brand. So Jason, appreciate the time, man. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, really obviously enjoy you guys' show and the uh, content that you guys covered. So fun to be on here. Nah, I appreciate, appreciate it, man. Um, you know, we've, we've crossed paths with whether it's been employees of yours or photographers that have been around the true links where brand in the past, and it's been nothing but good words. And they spoke so highly about the passion you guys have out at true of just what you're doing to kind of change the way a golf shoe looks, which I'm excited to get into, um, down the line here, but first let's just talk about that. The employees and like the photographers around true, you guys have a really cool culture out at true. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that we actually take great pride in. Uh, we want to be a place that you enjoy coming to work. You know, we we like to call some of, uh, you know, our product development, you know, when we're designing shoes, we call it selfish ideation. Like, what kind of shoes do we want to wear? What kind of golf shoes did we always grow up, like, wishing existed but never did? And, you know, in the same capacity, it's like, what kind of company do we want to build? What kind of company would we want to work for? And, uh, you know, we definitely know how to have a good time. Um, you know, everybody in the office, whether you're, you know, a novice golfer to, you know, a scratch golfer, we got guys that swing at 135, you know, club head speed. We got all kinds of golfers around here. 
and it's just a great place to work. You know, we like to think that we treat each other more like family and friends. And we're kind of just here to share, you know, our passion for footwear and the game of golf with, you know, the rest of the world. Yeah, it was really neat to see, Dante, you were with me down at the PGA show, kind of our first time at the PGA show in, in 2020, went out and played with Janela and his skins game and, and they were giving away some true footwear. So, you know, in true fashion, we had to, to go out and muck it up with the guys and have a good time. And um, you mentioned kind of the relaxed fit. It, that's the, I, what I imagine is your main vibe is, is that skins game mentality, just laid back t-shirt, uh, kicking it back with the guys with a couple of drinks. Um, you guys have some tour representation as well, which I'm sure we'll get into, but obviously your brother, Ryan Moore, um, I imagine was a pretty good influence to get into the golf industry yourself. Um, talk about that relationship and how that might've kind of molded something special to start this true links brand. Oh, for sure. Ryan's an instrumental part, you know, of the company, not only from the heritage, but day-to-day operations and involvement. Um, but yeah, Ryan and I both grew up in a very golf centric family. Our dad was just an absolute golf nut. Uh, you know, he actually owned and operated a driving range, built a few golf courses. You know, he just loved golf. He didn't get into it until later in life. So he wanted to make sure that we grew up just fully entrenched in it. So whether it was out picking range balls, you know, on a Sunday morning or, you know, just, you know, grinding away, you know, on the, uh, on the range and, and playing a little, you know, uh, local muni golf, we were always kind of around the sport. And so it's kind of been our blood, been playing since we could both walk. Ryan obviously took uh, a path towards wanting to play professionally, which was rad to watch and get to see and actually support. I actually caddied for him out on the PGA Tour for four seasons. Uh, we had a blast out there working together. And it was during that time, actually, somebody came to us and pitched us this concept of hey, what if we could build you a, a really comfortable, minimalist, walking, you know, natural motion golf shoe? You know, and at the time, we were actually doing a lot of like our practicing and, and tennis shoes because we we're just fed up with, you know, what was on the market as far as what was called a golf shoe then. And, uh, you know, so we we're like, uh, yeah, we love that idea. Like, and, and, and we also happened to work out in these really nice minimalist shoes for running and and doing workouts at the time. And I was like, if we can build something like this, I think that there'll be some traction. And so we, we got pretty lucky when the first samples came out and it happened to be exactly what Ryan was looking for from a fit and performance standpoint and said, you know what, I don't think I'm, I don't think you guys can take these off my feet, whether or not we have a name brand yet or ability to sell these, I want to wear the prototypes. And so that's kind of how things got started. I love that. And, and for those who might not know, truly what Ryan accomplished during his not only amateur career, but professional career as well. Guys, I'm going to give you a little background here. He's a one of only five golfers to win the NCAA individual championship and the U S amateur in the same year, back in 2004, joining company like Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, Phil Mickelson, and Bryson DeChambeau. So obviously a very accomplished golfer in his own right. Um, and really cool that you got to experience the caddying side of things. And what I can only imagine is definitely why you guys jumped into the shoe game for how much you guys were walking weekend in and week out for sure i mean you know when your first inclination when you get off the golf course is to run to your trunk or locker room to get your golf cleats off you know that something's wrong and we knew that you know just from growing up we played a lot of golf and tennis shoes comfortable running shoes things like that we knew we, we knew that a golf shoe didn't have to look like what was on the market and what was available on the shelves at the time so it was definitely a huge inspiration for us we wanted shoes that 
not only felt good and performed the way we wanted on the course, but were comfortable enough you could wear them all day and look good enough that you didn't mind, you know, being seen in them after the round. So, you know, we've never believed that golf should be, you know, this game of costumes where you put on your golf costume, you know, in the locker room and, and you're ashamed to go out in, in public or to dinner in that same outfit. So we, we just kind of want to reinvent that culture and say, you know, what kind of golf uh, lifestyle shoes um, do we need to create that are your favorite shoes? You know, you, you wear, you know, in everyday life, but now you can wear it um, on the golf course as well. I love that. I think there's so many times I know myself, especially like you said, you go to the cart, you take off the cleats and you're just like, man, crack your toes. Like my feet are sore. <laughs> and this is only after 18 and that's just one day, let alone three, four days in a row and, um, and so on. And I think every golfer knows that struggle. So um, it's obviously really cool. And, and you're starting to see across the board. I think you guys really created a trend in which a lot of companies are following of, Hey, let's put some street you know, streetwear to the looks of a golf shoe and see if we can't kind of complement the both of them. Um, you mentioned a little bit how that first shoe started, you guys were approached and it really came out how you were expecting it to come out right off the bat, which I think is incredible. That doesn't happen very often. Um, from that first shoe, has it changed much? Do they still look the same? Is it the same makeup? Like how did that design impact what you guys are making today? Has it gone maybe in a different direction or is it same, still, still look pretty similar? Oh, man, we definitely have evolved through the years. I think it's anybody that wants to master their craft does, right? Um, but we still have a full lineup within our current lineup called our OG line or originals. And they're really based off of that first true that we built a really minimalist platform, flexible, wider toe box. And so some of those fundamentals still carry into what we're doing now today, 13 years later. Um, but we've definitely evolved our offerings to offer more variations in fit and feel and performance and aesthetic. And, you know, I, I'll be honest, some of the first shoes that we made were amazingly comfortable, but really hard to look at. And so, <laughs> you know, we wanted to mature our aesthetic and our style as we continue to evolve as a brand. And I think we really hit our stride um, circa 2017 we kind of figured it out finally where we wanted to go with this. And Ryan and I kind of took the reins at that point and said, let's steer the company in this new direction. And I think ever since then, we've really enjoyed, you know, from the selfish ideation side, you know, every product that we put out because, you know, I, I think that we're starting to transcend, you know, just shoes being worn on the golf course to shoes that you're proud to wear in everyday life for sure. I love that. Yeah, one of the things I never like really understood is especially when it comes to golf is, I mean, I get it with like cleats and stuff, but like with golf, it's not like you really need to dig so much into the, into the turf. Like if you were playing like football or, or baseball or something like that, it's like, Oh, I'm going to wear like sneakers to the golf course that are very comfortable on my feet and then have to dig out of my trunk spikes that, you know, like you guys said before in previous years is where, you know, I can't wait to get these things off after I walk 18. Like, why can't I just go put on a pair of shoes that look good, feel good. I can go play golf in. And then afterwards I can go to the bar or go out to eat and then still drive home to them. It just, it never really made sense to me as to why, why can't I just wear a shoe from my house to the golf course back to my house? Yeah, for sure. Now I'm glad that you're not the only person that wondered why that was, the only thing available in the marketplace. So 
I mean, there's definitely some advantage to, to having some robust tread and rubber grip on the bottom of the sole. But I'll be honest, most of these like tread patterns and spikes, they're placebos, they're marketing gimmicks. Like you need a, a reasonable amount of, you know, traction under your foot, but it's, it's not all too different than your everyday trail running shoe or, or you know, rubber treaded shoe. Um, and, and we just wanted to make sure that we fine-tuned it for golf in a way that, you know, was ideal for wearing on the PGA Tour, which people, you know, we have a half dozen players that lace them up every week on the PGA Tour. And, you know, the, there's ample grip for those guys. So I'm guessing there's ample grip for us, you know, common golfers too, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it amazed me. You know, you talk, we've had this conversation a couple of times where we obviously know there's still some tour pros wearing some metal spikes inside the ropes. And then you kind of see the exact opposite of ideologies when you look at a, a true shoe and you, when you look at the treadwear patterns and it's soft spikes versus, you know, metal spikes, uh, it brings the question is the performance there. And obviously when you've got guys inside the ropes at the highest of levels wearing a shoe like that, it's a pretty quick answer. It's obvious. It's a, it's a yes. Um, where, where did that, I guess, you know, diving into kind of the design behind the, not only the shoe patterns and stuff like that, how did you optimize performance? Is that something when you guys, you and Ryan took over in 2017, you really looked at from a, a shoe design aspect and said, all right, let's dive into the performance about it too. And, and it kind of a loaded question there as well, but you guys are always testing out incredibly high end materials. You know, where did that performance and material use kind of blend themselves together once you guys really took it over and, and took the head on it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the funnest and, and most challenging parts of our job is product testing, you know, like literally getting out on the course, trying new materials, trying new, you know, outsoles and, and technologies and, manufacturing techniques and waterproof constructions uh, just to find the best result. Luckily for us, we have guys within our Rolodex, whether it's Ryan himself or other top tier players around the world that love to be a part of our product testing process. And so, you know, we wanted to, you know, stick to our roots. We're not going to be the, you know, traditional uh, dress shoe that has a leather sole with the metal spikes or even, you know, TPU plastic spikes and things of that nature on the bottom, because we just don't find any grounds for that to be the most natural and most athletic and best performing, you know, formula. So we, we've stuck to our roots, keeping things really natural, high quality, durable materials, time-tested techniques used maybe from the outdoor space for waterproofing or tread patterns, um, you know, outsole, you know, durability testing, um, and, and keep things as simple as possible to basically what we want to do is enhance, you know, the human body while you're out walking. We want to take care of your, you know, body the proper way and build something that works ergonomically with it, not just something that looks good on a shelf or something that has a crazy marketing story because of some airbag or springs in the heel. Like we want to build products that are actually meant to function naturally with your body and kind of enhance that athletic natural motion, just giving you the grip, you know, the durability and the waterproofing that you need to go out and, you know, play your best. 
And I think that's the biggest question so many people have right off the bat is, you know, how can you make an athletic shoe, almost a sneaker-esque shoe um, that has the comparable waterproofing of say like a foot joy, dry joys or something similar, right? Like that it's guaranteed if you go out in the morning, do it's going to keep your foot dry. If you go out and it rains on you, it's going to keep your foot dry. How are you guys able to attain that? Because I think that's a lot of folks' biggest question when you look at a sneaker or a streetwear style shoe. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, first of all, we looked well outside of the golf space when it came to waterproofing. We found that, you know, the common practices from these larger brands in our space were nowhere near industry best practices in footwear manufacturing. Um, you know, a lot of these guys are really just taking an educated guess on who's actually willing to go through the return process. They don't care if it's built to a full waterproof standard. Uh, they just know people are oftentimes too lazy to complain or return. And so they're hedging their bets and building something, you know, from an economical standpoint that works for their price point and their retail strategy, right? But we wanted to go back to, you know, uh, some of the heroes in the space um, that are leading in the waterproofing techniques and technologies and infuse some of it into these, you know, more, sneaker profiles and, and incognito ways. And so we've done everything from, you know, full waterproof booty construction on most of our standard two-year waterproof shoes to testing, you know, really forward and advanced, you know, waterproof lamination techniques that provide increased uh, breathability and comfort and, and allow for less heat retention inside of the shoe and, and kind of trying to push the limits and creating some proprietary techniques of our own now. Um, and, you know, you're really not going to find another shoe in golf with the kind of waterproofing technology and definitely not the same type of waterproof warranty uh, that you'll get, you know, when you buy a pair of trues. I think that's like the biggest thing when it comes to golf shoes, especially because, you know, you got the dew sweepers out there and you got, when it rains, you got guys who want to play when it rains and you're in areas like yourself where like it gets a little bit, more rain here and there and you know i had a like my course like it gets it can get wet uh, it gets very dewy and it can get wet at times and i remember playing in a tournament and the one guy walked up and i said and I, this is when i was like getting familiar with the brand and i was like what are those he goes dude these are probably the best shoes i've ever had when it comes to waterproofing i said he's like hands down my feet are dry to the bone after i walk out there after the stuff that we see especially on our course where it gets wet and the water retains so much and he's like i'll never walk out with another pair of shoes ever again yeah and i was like we've got a special guest with us to talk golf course architecture and a special project going on down in texas um, you might have heard of him he spent some time with the golf channel spent some time on the pga tour and even won a few times uh Forbes calls him the Da Vinci of sports commentators. So happy to have Brandel Chambly on the show. Brandel, thanks for taking the time. Excited to, to dive into your project. I appreciate that. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, really appreciate it, uh, both you guys. So, uh, um, yeah, you know, I just uh, flew home from uh, the East Coast uh, yesterday. I'm in Scottsdale. I got a little time off, but uh, we're about to dive into this project and uh, very much looking forward to getting it started. That's exciting. Between uh, Arizona and Texas, you're spending a little bit more time in the warmer weather than we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I do fly up there for work. Uh, you know, our studio is in Stanford, Connecticut. So 
you know, for, maybe for the first time in my life, I, I bought a long length, heavy coat last year. I, I've not grown up and I have not really spent much time in cold weather. So I, I, I can sympathize with uh, what you guys endure for sure. Yeah, I'm sure you're happy to leave that coat at home when you uh, when you take the trip back to to the warm weather. Yeah, I'm 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 outdoors every day doing something or trying to be, and it's a little hard to do that. Uh, you know, when I start, let's see, from January, you know, when I flew up there last year on January, I don't know, it was like it was below zero or something. It was like, yeah, we're we're not spending any time outdoors up there. Now I know why everybody's so smart up there. They just stay indoors and read and think. <laughs> that, that <laughs> or are they smart that. because they're still up there? Well, fair, fair point. Fair <laughs> point. <laughs> well, speaking of warm weather, you spent a good time of your college years at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, obviously, this project taking place in Texas as well. Talk us a little bit. You said you, before we hopped on here, had the idea for well over a decade. Um, talk us through like the initial idea concept and, and why it's been such a focal point for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the idea first sort of popped into my head about a decade ago when I was asked to to go over and and be a lead analyst uh, for the the Founders Cup of the inaugural year 2011 Judy Rankin is ordinarily the the lead analyst but her husband felt ill that week so I was asked to go fill in and there were two holes on the back nine there that were <clears throat> meant to be drivable you know they were 300 330 somewhere in that range but they didn't end up setting them up in the 260 290 yardage for the women to have a go at it and that that kind of surprised me so i started looking at the differences between the length of the courses played on the lpga tour and the length of the courses played on the pga tour and what i found at least in my estimation was that too often they either play golf courses or the golf courses were set up in such a way that they disincentivized heroic play on the LPGA tour. And, you know, if I looked even further, uh, I noticed a disparity in scoring average between the LPGA tour and the PGA tour, which <clears throat> you can't convince me for a second that it has anything to do with skill level. I think it has everything to do with the design of the golf courses uh, and the way they're set up uh, just in the last four years. If you look at the LPGA Tour, only six women on average have averaged under 70. And if you look at the same time period for the PGA Tour, using the actual scoring averages, because uh, in the LPGA Tour, they don't use adjusted. The PGA Tour has adjusted in actual, but in actual scoring average, uh, there's been 38 on average men average under 70. And, and that disparity comes down to, again, at least in my view and, and the data that I've parsed through, uh, it's 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 too often that uh, the trajectories of approach shots are are flatter with less spin rate, lower spin rate, and that leads to balls finishing farther away from the hole. Less exciting birdie putts made, less exciting eagle putts made, and subsequently higher scoring averages. So it's not just about yardage. I mean, I singled out yardage to show the disparity, like the average PGA Tour course is 7,200 yards long. The average LPGA course is 6,400 yards long. That 800 yards doesn't come anywhere close to creating an equitable play, playing, you know, a, a playing field for LPGA and PGA Tour players. But it's not just about yardage. It's about the placement of bunkers, the severity of bunkers, uh, pitches of fairway where tee shots are landing, 
and so forth. And I, I have examples for all of those. Uh, <clears throat> and, and so, again, I thought, you know, it surprised me that the LPGA didn't have their equivalent of the TPC Sawgrass, their course at their home designed for them and to give the women the best possible stage under the brightest possible lights. And, um, you know, look, when I wrote the book that I wrote, The Anatomy of Greatness, the reason I wrote it is because it didn't exist and I wanted to read it. And so I thought, well, heck, I'll just write the book. And, and this course doesn't exist. And I've waited for it to get designed and it hasn't. And, you know, I joined with uh, Augustine Pisa uh, last year and we, we have projects going. But when we broached this subject with an investor in South Texas, his eyes lit up. We took it to the city council. The city council loved it. Uh, I mean, all of them, every one of them, economic development, uh, city manager, aviation experts, the mayor, they all loved it. They wanted in. They thought golf needed to be more inclusive. Uh, and, you know, since then, I've talked to Amazon about it. Amazon loves it. They want to get in on it. Uh, and, you know, that's, uh, I mean, we're in the early stages of this uh, and it, 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 it will evolve, no doubt. But, um, but the course is going to get built either way. And we're going to build it um, for the best women players. Uh, Lorena Ochoa is now part of our design team. Uh, I can say uh, she has a great, rep, um, uh, a great rapport, I should say, with uh, Augustine Pisa. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very cool to have Lorena Choa be a part of this project. Well, there's so many exciting things to unpack of, of kind of what you just went over as I'm sure a spark notes version of the, the entirety of everything going on. Um, you, you mentioned, and I think, you know, you'll have, as you always do a lot of data to kind of go into the golf course architecture side of things. One of the things that popped out to me, uh, when going over just the challenges to build, something that specifically caters to the LPGA as opposed to the PGA was not only just the movement of bunkers and, and hazards and, and whatnot, but the way you talked about tilted fairways and approach shots and, and different things there. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the partnership with Augustine Pisa and, and how you're really looking into challenging these women players that just differs from a lot of golf course architecture that we see on the PGA tour? Yeah, so, you know, Augie, I met Augie four or five years ago, and I followed him on social media. And, you know, as much as I <clears throat> don't like social media, it is a, a wonderful way to get a sense of who somebody is. Um, so I've watched him, and I've looked at his projects, and he's, not, he's a fellow who's not afraid to create, um, uh, I think, original and unique projects. You know, he has golf concept projects all over Mexico. He has wellness golf down at a place called Chablay uh, in Mexico. Uh, and yet his architecture, he's, you know, he's an incredibly uh, smart person. He was trained at, at, uh, as a vertical architect. He has a degree in vertical architecture first at the University of Monterey, which is the premier university in, in Latin America. Um, and after, um, graduating with a degree in vertical architecture and spending time there, he fell in love with golf. So he decided to go get a master's degree in horizontal architecture, golf course architecture at the university of Edinburgh in, in Scotland. <clears throat> and he's one of just three people in the entire world. Who's a member of both the European golf course architecture society and the American golf course architecture society. They don't 
just let you be members. You have to be involved in projects uh, all over the world to, to have that done. So he's a very smart guy, very creative. And I've loved the designs that I've seen. He's, he's won numerous awards. One of them was for a redesign. And in particular, it had a short drivable par four. Um, <clears throat> this is down on the border uh, and, and just across the border in Mexico. Short drivable par four that I thought was one of the prettiest holes I've ever seen. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we started talking. And, and I had written about how to approach the controversy of increased distances by changing the setups of golf courses on the PGA Tour. And I think it just boils down to math. It boils down to dispersion numbers. It boils down to club head speed. It boils down to angles of attack. It boils down to trajectory. I think math. And look, I, this is where art and science meet where math and utility meet. And, and I, you know, I, I, I'm looking at it purely from an sort of an academic standpoint, but there's certainly an artistic view. So he reached out to me. He's the artist. He's kind of the right brain guy and I'm more the left brain guy. And so we formed a partnership and we, we have a, a really cool project going on in Mexico. Uh, it's a butterfly effect. We call it the butterfly effect for two different reasons. One, it's the metaphor saying, you know, a butterfly can flap its wings and, and the Amazon and it can cause a hurricane to hit, in you know new york uh you know that's a that's a uh, a, a metaphor it's a parable but it's also in in some way it has these loops and you put the loops together it almost looks like a butterfly where we're building four six hole loops it's because one that gives us seven different 18 hole golf course options but two it allows people to play any any number of you know golf holes they want to play i mean if they want to play Three, they can do that, but mostly they can play six holes in an hour and a half, or they can go play 12, or they can play 18, um, and, and, and so forth. And those designs um, are, you know, a couple hours out, about an hour and a half outside of Monterey, Mexico, and we break ground there uh, after the first of this year. So, so Augie reached out to me, and he was curious about this design, and I started taking him through some of the design aspects that are built for men and a handicap to women. Um, for example, the 18th hole at Augusta National, obviously designed to test the best players in the world. The bunkers on the left are, are gaping. They're deep, uh, seven, eight foot lips. Uh, at the Augusta National Women's Amateur, uh, a few players drove it in that left bunker on the last day. Two of them, Karen Fredgard and Subasa Kajitani, drove it in there. They had, you know, the tournaments, the championships hanging in the balance. They pondered the shot. They both hit their shots. They both hit the lip and it went 50 yards down the fairway. They didn't come anywhere near getting on the green. And, you know, we see scores of players drive it in that left bunker in the masters and knock it onto the green. The bunkers weren't as deep, but they were a little farther away. Uh, in 1987, when Sandy Lyle hit his famous bunker shot out of there to 10 feet and made birdie, and I thought, <clears throat> that's not a difference in talent. That is just a difference in design. So the lip needs to be, you know, accommodate a difference in trajectory for the best women player. It needs to have, you know, if you start to look at what trajectory, you know, um, the difference between trajectories for the best players on the LPGA and the PGA Tour, the difference in spin rate and the difference of angle of descent you need about 30, 40 yards difference between the two to get the same sort of trajectory, spin rates, and angles of descent. So that bunker, not only does the lip need to be 
obviously a little bit shorter, uh, a little bit uh, lower. It needs to be a little bit closer to the bunker to accommodate the best women players. And so uh, if you look at uh, Evian, uh, where they play the Evian championship, that hole is not designed for the best women players. It's designed for the best men players or the men players. Uh, women are almost always an afterthought. The tees are just moved up haphazardly. And so that fairway is severely pitched where their tee shots land. And so very often it hits in that fairway and goes all the way down into the rough. Uh, you know, when the women played the KPMG LPGA Championship at Westchester Country Club in 2015, the same thing, the 18th hole, <clears throat> first of all, they could hardly get there in two when almost every man when they play there is able to get there in two. You know, the platform for heroics needs to be comparable for both tours because it affects perceptions and it shouldn't. You know, there's hardly any more exciting than going for a par, a drivable par four uh, and getting it close and jumping up the leaderboard or, you know, going for uh, a par five and two uh, or trying to attack a tucked pin. And if you don't have the accommodation for approach shots or, you know, pinch points or turn points on dog legs, you're not going to have the same sort of platform for heroics. So, you know, as I've talked this over with Augie, it's like, wouldn't it be great if we looked at the parameters on the LPGA tour. We had the turn points in the right spot. We had the bunkers in the right spot. We had the wits, the amount of rough, the right depth, the angles of the greens at the right places, the depth of greens at the right places for the right trajectories and spin rates with artistic, with, you know, beautifully artistic holes with all of that sort of DNA in the design. And, and it just works out perfectly that, the distances that the you know average LPGA players hit it are fairly comparable to the average recreational male golfer. So it's not like you know this golf course is just going to be for women. You know the average male golfer is going to you know they're going to have a club head speed of somewhere around 94, 95 miles an hour, uh, and that's an average LPGA club head speed. Although you know you start to look at Patty Tavitanik at Ann Van Dam. Lexi Thompson, Nelly Corder, their club head speeds get up into 108, 109. Uh, but that, that is the idea. That is the concept. Now, what that's going to look like, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but that is the idea. And so that, so that women are encouraged to take chances, that they, they can drive it over bunkers, that you know, they can cut corners. They can go for the, you know, if you think about the last three holes at the Players' Championship, 16, 17, and 18, and almost how every year the Players' Championship is a, a very exciting finish because those holes have great risk-reward, a lot of water. It causes cognitive chaos, you know, and nobody can really decide whether they're great holes or terrible holes, you know, and that, that I think that's, you know, as a player, I hated that golf course. And I thought Pete Dye was one of the worst things that there was about golf. But as I've said, as a commentator, and I've watched uh, the play unfold over almost 20 years since I've been covering golf, and I look at the integrity of that design, how almost every hole asks you to do one thing off of the tee and another thing into the green, and yet it has, you know, it doesn't have natural landforms. None of that, that was a swamp. But Pete Dye built into either with, you know, dramatic mounds or dramatic bunkering or dramatic lakes and railroad ties. He gave you uh, a shocking, incredibly well-designed golf course. 
So, and I'm not saying that's what the LPGA course is going to be. In my mind, I'm calling it the LPGA, LPGA National, and we'll see if it ends up being called that. But I'm not saying that's what it's going to be, but those concepts will be percolating in the background as we, you know, bring this golf course to fruition. We are bringing on a return guest now, Jeff Mosini. He's been with us uh, since we kind of made our debut within the golf world uh, down at the PGA show in 2020. Uh, seems like uh, years and years have passed since then with what the world has had going on, uh, what we've had going on in-house and what Jeff's had going on in-house uh, since launching Slope Grade down at the 2020 PGA show. So, Jeff, really appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, we always enjoy a good talk with you. Oh my goodness. And I am so happy to be back here. It has been forever and a lot has changed and I cannot wait to dive deep into everything going on in the golf world, as well as what's happening in the slope grade world as well. Well, and it's, it's funny you mentioned that not only golf world, but slope grade world as well. So guys, if you stick on to the end of the show, we're going to talk about some exciting new updates regarding slope grade and the product that we talked about, what seems like eons ago and years ago at the, at the PGA show in 2020 and um, right. how we've used it ourselves. We've done a, a full fledged review on it and what's, what's exciting surrounding slope grade, but um, Jeff, just excited to have you on and talk green reading, talk role maps, which we'll get into as well. Um, just a fun time to be inside the golf industry right now. Exactly. So Dante, you and I talked about this and, and as we, dove into it on our own podcast. Um, we, there was a lot of questions left to be answered, which I think is, is why it's exciting to bring Jeff on because he's really in this space. And Jeff, you dive into it from an analytics perspective of what really is and how players use and read greens. Um, we're losing the green reading book, you know, quote unquote is what the, what the pros want to call it, what the USGA and governing bodies want to call it the green reading book. We're losing that in 2022. Um, diving into that first and foremost, how do we think this on a grander scale is going to impact the top 50 pros in the world? Well, I do want to clarify that greed rating books will not be allowed in competitive rounds. However, they can be used in preparation for an event, such as uh, practice rounds, pro-ams, and even study before or after a competitive round. So they're not going to go away completely. However, basically, the PGA Tour wants to shift back to relying on the intuitive skills of reading greets, which is either kinesthetically with those that use the aimpoint point reading system or traditionally uh, what you see. So the so PGA Tour has taken a stance to go back to that and some of the uh, local rules that have been applied were expected. However, there were a couple that were very surprising to me and many other putting coaches in this industry. Uh, th there was a, another local rule that's going to be in effect on the PGA Tour that says you are not allowed to use any devices or technology on the practice screen or on the course during practice rounds and pro-ams. Now, I, to me, that sounds a little bit like an overreach simply because the perceptions of reading greens comes and goes like the full swing. Technology is already being used on the practice range and 
players are allowed to develop their intuitive skills with their golf swings. However, I feel like the putting aspect of the game is being singled out here. And that just not only hurts some businesses like myself, but it hurts a lot of coaches as well, simply because now players and caddies are going to have to mitigate uh, to account for these new rules, whether it being uh, copying all the notes that they had, even though you're not supposed to do that, or going to other local courses in the area to use these devices, such as the digital level uh, Sampot Labs or any other device that helps you with reading grades. Well, I think it's funny you, you use the word not supposed to. Uh, we all know as in you know competitive sports in general, whether it's baseball, whether it's football, there's a lot of not supposed to's that end up kind of flying under the radar simply because teams are looking for that competitive edge. And while golf is not a team sport, we're looking at individuals in their inner teams, right? Their caddy player relationship. Uh, that's where it starts when we're talking about yardage books. And when you look at not supposed to, but technically still allowed, it brings the question of how many of those notes are they going to transfer in the new year? Well, I think that the tour will implement some kind of testing system, kind of like drug tests, but kind of an inspection for the notes that they're carrying, because there are certain things that you can write based on observation only. So like with your eyes, you can like draw like the break of a pot. You can draw different slope arrows. However, you cannot write exact slope percentages or anything that is data driven. Uh, simply because that takes away from the intuitive skills direction that the tour is going. And not only will green rating books won't be allowed, there's going to be restrictions on yardage books as well. So the tour is going to come up with a committee approved yardage books that totally restricts what information is present. Uh, especially on the green where there's a lot of detailed topographical maps that are very useful for a player. However, it almost provides an advantage to some players while other players who may not be able to afford these detailed books are left behind. So I could see where they're going trying to normalize the playing field, but again, I said this before and I'll say it again. I believe they went too far uh, extending that in the practice arena. Not, not that data collection is, is bad. I can live with not being able to collect data on the golf course, but on the practice green, come on. It seems like they're going back to the old Jack and Arnie days where they give them a blank yardage book and say, hey, go out, get your numbers and do what you want. But then it's going to be kind of a gray area is who's going to be policing this like you said you know what i mean and i just think it's going to be very difficult when it comes to that because it almost puts it in the hands of like look at football with like reps and stuff like and basketball and all the reps on and baseball with the umpires it seems like again you're putting it back into the hands of the officials making these calls making these calls uh, these calls and it's going to just be a giant mess when it comes to that. So Jeff, I do agree with you. I think they kind of overstepped on where they're trying to go. I think what their intentions is great, but it's a little too much. 
Uh, so uh, without further ado, if, if I'm able to share my screen, I'll be able to show your viewers uh, visually without holding up my phone to the camera, which will be a lot easier. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like guys, like we said, uh, obviously audio on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, if you're listening, uh, do a do a big favor, go over to YouTube, uh, where the visual aspect of the next however long we go on is going to be highly beneficial for you guys to understand what we're talking about. Because Jeff's going to share his screen and and walk us through some exciting new features from SlopeGrade that are going to be rolling out here in the in the coming weeks. So, uh, Jeff, without further ado, man, uh, take us through and uh, show us what the exciting news is. Okay, so as you can see on the left side of the screen is a live feed of my iPhone right now with the Slopegrade app open. Now, traditionally, we have used the Slopegrade app as a wearable level with a clip on here that is mounted to your midsection and turns your lower body into a human level, which is very advantageous if you use the endpoint greeter system. However, there has been uh, comments made by my clients saying the concept is amazing and all, except there's going to be some things that they aren't going to compromise in terms of their playing experience, whether it be uh, wearing loose clothing or no belt. Hmm. And they wanted to still use slope grade, but not be restricted to uh, conditions where they have to wear their pants a little snug and wear a belt. So in order to accommodate that, I am proud to introduce a new way to use slope grade. Clip free. Clip free. So what this does now is you can now use this slope grade sensor as a bow marker. Oh, get out. <laughs> so now I can set this anywhere on the green like where my ball is, and I can press one button here, and it's going to automatically calculate not only where the slope is, but also the slope elevation as well. So let's just set this here to a 15 foot putt to really see this idea at place. So if I just hold the sensor up just a little bit like right here and press this again, It is now detected that my putt is severely downhill and it's telling me to aim eight inches from the right edge, which is giving me about a slope of one and a half percent. And what's unique about this is there's going to be times where you use it as a ball marker, where there could be a slope that's greater than what is calculated from that particular spot. What we've added here is a slider at the bottom of this read so that you can adjust in real time what that slope percentage is. And it, as I adjust it, you see the slope angle it, represented by that line change. So you can set it to what you see visually and then have a read that best fits. So let's just say that like I have a 3% slope. Now it's telling me to aim two feet from the right edge for that putt. And let's just say that it's not a downhill putt, but it's uphill. That read has now changed to 19 inches because if you think about it, the ball is going to be launched at a greater speed when going uphill. The ball is going to slow down a lot quicker, which the effect of gravity from the side slope is not going to affect the ball as much versus a downhill putt where there's 
more time rolling towards a hole. The ball is not going to take, it's going to take longer to get to the hole. The gravity is going to have a greater effect on moving the putt from right to left or left to right. So, so Jeff, what I'm seeing right off the bat, and I just I apologize for cutting you off, but I just, I'm, I'm seeing it as you activate the, the slope grade chip. Um, there's, there's a slope elevation, like you said, which, which delineates your downhill versus uphill. There's a slope, uh, speed on the right side, which is, you know, your one foot, two foot, three foot, four foot putts and so on and so forth. And then right in the center, as it's always been is your, is your number as far as from right edge or from left edge or, or so on and so forth. That's an update in itself from what I understand of just the three kind of toggles going all at once. Um, because you used to have to go to different screens, if I'm not mistaken, to kind of see the speed. So that in itself to me is like, I'm mind blown. Um, And like I said, guys, if you haven't seen our initial video on reviewing the slope grade product, go check that out, but go see our YouTube of, of this show, because there's so much information going on, on Jeff's uh, cell phone that he's putting up on his screen right now. That's just fascinating. There's so much going on. And it's all in one screen. It's not a button to this screen and a button to that screen. It's it's all in one place. Uh, I'm, Jeff, I'm fascinated by the new kind of interface that you've got going on with slope grade. Yes. And what I was also about to get into, let's just say you do have a downhill putt that's pretty quick. I have this set to 11 and a half on the step meter. What's to say we want to die this putt in the hole? We can change the speed preference down here. And now we're getting an updated reference start line based on where we need to aim this putt in order for this putt to finish dead weight into the hole. Now, if you wanted to really be aggressive, let's just say you're in match play, you really need to make this putt or at least <laughs> take all the breakout. You could slide it all the way up and get a read of two feet from the right edge for a putt that's breaking 3%. So this is a one-stop shop, if you will, to accommodate any punting style for any given situation out on the golf course so you can develop trust, develop confidence, and most importantly, develop joy for the game that you're playing because this is a game meant to be enjoyed. And I cannot tell you how many times, myself included, have talked about, oh, I should have made this putt. I should have made that putt. (laughs) I I want to stop those conversations because I want to focus more on the ability to give it your best effort. And there's going to be some times where you're going to make putts out here using slope grade. And you're going to be like, wow, I didn't think it was going to be that easy, but here we are now that this has been a valuable practice tool for me. And this is just my way of giving back to the game that has treated me so well. you're a fan of the golf swing, uh, figuring out your own golf game, or, or just trying to figure out how to shoot lower scores, um, you're going to be in for quite the treat this episode. We have Christo Garcia on the show. Uh, Christo is, I would say, more than infatuated with the swing of Mr. Ben Hogan. Um, he's studied it now for years on end. Um, and if you've watched the golf channel anytime in the last year or so, um, you might recognize him as he was cast in the golf channel special Hogan, um, because his swing is just basically a replica of Mr. Ben Hogan himself. So Christo pumped to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Uh, really excited to dive into everything that is surrounding your expertise. 
Well, it's an honor to be here. Like I said, I love you guys' podcast. Uh, it's really, I love the guests you get on. So it's my honor to be here because uh, most people who follow my swing evolution know the extent to which I've struggled with the game. And um, it, was, it was Ben Hogan's book that I give credit to saving my sanity, in a sense, um, you know, saving my game because um, I hadn't broken 80 in over 20 years. And I did it a couple times in high school. I played on the high school golf team. But those were those days when everything's going right, you know. Most of the time I was a, you know, high 80s, 90s golfer and sometimes hundreds. And uh, I just wanted to break 80. And I'll tell you, I had uh, I bought seven drivers in three years, hoping to straighten out my slice that I had. And uh, next to the cash register was Ben Hogan's five lessons. And it was just $12. I'm like, okay, throw this into, I might as well. I like the pictures. But when I, I got home, this is a little over a decade ago, I was reading it. And he said, anyone who follows these basic fundamentals should be able to shoot in the seventies. And to me, I was like, if I could just do it once, I would be really, really excited. And, um, and I'll be darned three it was three months later, I shot a 79. And, uh, and, and it was like the parting of the Red Sea. It was like something very, very special had happened. And, and, you know, of course, there's the idea, okay, is it a fluke? Is it whatever? And I did it 14 times that first year in 2010. And for me to do that, it was like, it was just unbelievable. I was like, I wanted to, to spread the word. And you know, I started a YouTube channel the next January in 2011. And now we've got, you know, over 24 million views, you know, and uh, it's, it's literally a dream come true. Let's talk about that YouTube side of things first. Cause I think, you know, with, with that many views and over 50,000 subscribers, I think by far is probably your largest section of following. Um, what gave you the idea to kind of start documenting this, this really story of picking up the, the Ben Hogan way and, and seeing it through to, to teach others about it as well. So I'll tell you, this is a, a pretty crazy story that a lot of people don't know. The first year, 2010, that I was using Ben Hogan's book, I had no plan at all to try and look like Ben Hogan. None. And uh, I was just trying to use the, the, the tips and things in the book to try and hit the ball a little better. The, I had one round to go that first year. My lowest round that year was 74. And I was like, I want to, you know, try and do just go one more round. And it was after Christmas. And um, I fell asleep on the couch. I slept on my left side like this, passed out. I woke up the next morning and I, I couldn't lift this arm at all. And I'm like, I'm, this is my last round of golf. I've got to go to the golf course. And I got to the golf course. I could barely hang on with my left hand and I was basically swinging all of my right hand and I felt kind of Trevino like for some reason or whatever and I brought my little flip video camera and I got home that evening and for the first time ever I saw something that somewhat resembled Ben Hogan because I had not previously been getting my right side through the shot enough and all of a sudden it dawned on me 
thing, my swing evolution. And I'm going to try and actually look like Ben Hogan. And I'm going to explore what there is about Ben Hogan. There's everybody knows about the secret. I'm like, what's the secret? I want to figure out what the secret is. And it was literally because I woke up with what's referred to as Saturday night palsy. A uh, doctor told me that that's what they call it, you know, when you cut off the circulation to your arm or whatever. And that's what inspired me to start trying to swing like Ben Hogan. That's wow. uh, it's amazing to me that like, you know, almost a divine intervention of sorts uh, caused you to really take the dive into which is, you know, obviously now become, I would imagine, almost a part of your life is, you know, the the Hogan way and, and really embodying what is not only his swing thoughts, but embodying him as almost a personality. You know, I had the pleasure of uh, working with Sean Cox at the the Fairmont uh, the Grand Del Mar in San Diego. It's a five-star resort down there. It's one of the most beautiful golf courses you'll ever see. And Sean's the head pro down there. And he said to me earlier this year, he goes, he goes, have you read the book, The Alter Ego Effect? And I'm like, no, I don't know what it is. And he goes, you actually did the alter ego effect that he talks about in the book. And he tells me, he's like, Bo Jackson, uh, never played a down of football until he created an alter ego. And, and he said that he wanted to play football like Jason, the, from the slasher movies, like with the mask on just emotionless and just execute. And then, and he brought up uh, Beyonce Knowles has an alter ego. She calls Sasha fierce because when you go out on stage, I've worked in, you know, Hollywood and in theater for a long time. It's, you get, stage fright it's pressure you know but the idea of having an alter ego can allow you to release your own self from the feelings of failure pressure not being good enough and what sean helped me to realize i i it didn't dawn on me before but i was like yeah i i put on this hat and it let me leave behind the 90 hundred shooter and create an alter ego and get a fresh start at a game that I've loved and, and suffered with. I quit golfing for many years because it was too painful. I didn't pick up a club for four years. I swore I'd never play again, you know, and now look, look at where I'm at now, you know? So the one other funny thing is I was um, a karate champion when I was younger, I won the Florida open karate championship and in my teens, Bruce Lee was my alter ego. I wanted to be just like Bruce Lee. And then when I was in a karate movie and I decided to change my major to theater. Um, and so when you study theater, you take electives in singing and, and dancing as well. So I was in a ballet class, which is the heart. Ballet is so hard, I can't even begin to tell you. It's the most complicated movement system you're ever going to try and tackle. And I was given a videotape of Baryshnikov by my, my teacher, who was a pretty famous uh, ballet teacher named Gretchen Warren. And she had coached at the American Ballet Theater. And she goes, this is Baryshnikov, watch him. And that's, that's all I did for years is I was like, I just wanted to move like Baryshnikov. And in less than three years, I was in a ballet company, you know? So yeah. I had done it a couple of times before in a sense. I, 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 I love that methodology. I love that mentality because especially when you take all those, 
you know, the karate and the ballet and bringing all that into golf. And, you know, it, it's just golf becomes such a mental game. And I go through it as, as myself and I'm, it's mind blowing already. You just ex- telling me this where I want to go out and get that, that book now and, and read that because I think I can apply that, which I had never have to my game and see where it can lead me down the road to where I can elevate my game. Because just like yourself, Krista, I, I got into the game after college, after playing lacrosse, I was a lacrosse player ever since I moved to New Jersey, played through middle school, high school, and then ended up being able to play it in college as well. It wasn't until then where I decided after, after basically almost busting my knee, I decided I'm going to get into golf. And it was like, when I got in the golf, I went to YouTube and that's how I came across your channel and, and how you literally like, and that's, and I just watched video after video after video and that I got the book as well. And it's just crazy how that mentality of just becoming someone else just to escape your own self in order to just to play better and how it can, you know, you want to be the best. So might as well try and, Play like the best. Well, the, I really believe, and I've lived it. I've lived it. I have been my own worst enemy on the golf course. Oh, you're preaching to the choir here on that <laughs> one. Uh, every every golfer knows that. You know, it's like, why did I do that? And so I made a video this morning, and I was talking about playing with my friend Mo, who's the four time champion at my club. Four-time club champion, we go out, we play around, we make a YouTube video. Um, you know, I shot, I shot 36 or whatever, and he's like, you just got to get out of your own way. And this was three years ago. And I'm like, okay, what, what does that mean, get out of my own way? Well, I made a video about it this morning because I got back in my way. This year, I've been struggling, and I, I took some lessons, and I kind of got confused about what I was trying to do. I was pull hooking everything. Every my game went to just right in the garbage. Um, but these last four rounds have been pretty good because I I remembered what Mo said, and it's like you don't have to make it so hard. Like I I sometimes play the game where it's like I think I have to like I'm playing against Rory McIlroy or something. You know, it doesn't matter. You can hit seven iron wedge into this par five and have a birdie putt you don't have to take on pull a kevin costner in 10 cup and try and hit three wood <laughs> over the water you know it's like it, it's kind of stuff like that that it's like if you can hit a solid shot and the shape repeats you have a basic shape if you can get off the tee and just base do basic chipping and putting you should be able to break 80. Well, so like, yeah. let's dive into that a little more because I, I think we talked about a couple really cool th- aspects there that I think the common golfer is just going to love to want to know more on. You talked about getting in your own way, which we both laughed at and said, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Um, hmm. I've played in club championships where I've had the lead in day one. I've played a great front nine. And then all of a sudden, you know, you come down the back nine to try and close something out and you forget how to swing a golf club, or at least it feels that way. It is like you, like I've never held a golf club before in my life. Right. So so let's talk about that aspect of, of maybe, you know, the way Hogan looked at it or the way you interpret the way Hogan looked at it or what you've learned in order to get out of your own way. Because I think in, 
philosophy, it, you know, in theory, it should should be easy. Just get out of your own way. But it, we all know it's much tougher than that. Um, how have you been able to kind of embody the Hogan mindset and, and be able to get out of your own way? Is it that ego? Is it that alter ego? Is there something maybe more attached to Hogan that's that's attached to being able to get out of your own way? Well, the, I believe during my swing evolution, I went from being a guy that plays golf to being a golfer. And during the last 10 years, I've had times when I slip back into a guy that plays golf and it's like, I forget everything, <laughs> but something that Ben Hogan said in the book is so important. And he said, there was something that happened in my mind when I realized I'm not all of a sudden going to lose it, you know, and it's what you were talking about. And I felt it myself. I felt it on, on the 18th hole today, you know, this, this kind of like fear. Am I possibly, is this going to fall apart on me or, you know, whatever. And it's like, if, if you can, okay, here's, here's something from the alter ego book it says there's two mindsets. There's, the wow mindset, like, wow, I get to hit this shot. And I'm, man, I'm ready to hit this shot. And there's the owl mindset. Like, I'm afraid of what's going to happen when I swing at this ball. I'm, I'm afraid that the OB's there, there's water short, there's a trap over the green. There's the owl mindset. And it's that simple that when you're in your own way, you're in the owl mindset. You're afraid of what the potentiality is, and you're no longer in the present moment. When you're in the wow mindset, you're ready to experience something right now that's fantastic. And so, you know, today, the, for me, the conditions, you know, I'm not used to playing in 50 degrees, you know, with a chilly wind and what have you. I birdied 16 and 17. I'm on 18 in the middle of the fairway, about 260 out, got a three wood. And and, and I started to get afraid. And I was like, just, you could hit seven iron and then just have a little pitch, you know, whatever, like wedge it up there or whatever. And I was like, you know, yeah, I could do that. But there's really not an awful lot of trouble up there. And I had to talk myself into the wow mindset. I'm like, it's fine. Just hit a three wood. Don't do anything stupid. Your swing's not going to sudden. You're not going to forget just make sure you compress down, you know, keep the force on the back of the shaft and hit down on this three wood, take a little divot, you know, just bam. And I, I put it up just short of the green, pitched it up and made the putt, you know, and, you know, that was for me at 73 is a pretty good round, especially under these conditions. And it was like, today was such an important test of like, getting out of my own way. I had two, three putts today that kind of kicked me in the rear you know, but I didn't, I didn't have any compounded mistakes. That's the problem I think that we get to. And one of my, one of my best lessons, my older brother gave me, who's a darn fine golfer. I, he always has made it look so simple. He's a golfer, like, like will shoot 67 in his club championship, like on a hard golf course. He's, he just is like, Chris, you know, you just don't hit two bad shots in a row. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, if you hit it in the trees, don't look for the gap and try and pull a sevy. He goes, 
I'll never hit two bad shots in a row and you're not likely to make doubles and triples. Cause I used to be Mr. Triple. <laughs> and it's like, you know, if I'm out of position now I'll play back into position and try and get up and down with a wedge or whatever. And it's like, you know, my gosh, the compounded mistakes that golf teases you with just destroys people's scorecards, you know? Yeah. The, the allure of being the hero, uh, just ruins rounds oh, more often than not. I've been down that road before and, and you're right there, Chris. So, and it's so much, I am like enjoying this greatly because it's supposed to be actually near 60 degrees this Saturday down our neck of the woods. <laughs> I might actually get out there and, and take all this in and just take that mentality and just the wow factor and all that, because I've, I've played rounds where, all right, you hit a bad shot and you, you, you don't worry about it. You put it off to the side. You make bogey. Like you can do with bogeys. Bogeys happen. It's like, all right, no big deal. You can make up for that pretty easily. Yeah. yeah. You make a majority of pars. You have a few little bo- bogeys and maybe throw a birdie there and two or there and two. You're still shooting in, you know, mid high seventies. You're good to go. Yeah. Once you, once you freak out about that bogey and then that next shot makes it, the next hole makes it a double bogey and then the other's a bogey. I mean, you're kind of, you're digging yourself a hole and you need to climb out. It's just, oh man, I'm pumped. I like want to play now. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, it's like, you know, everybody three putts sometimes. Everybody hits a bad shot, you know, but the funny thing is, is um, I, I've, I've just been so much more relaxed and, and like, I, I feel like this year of my swing evolution, I may finally be growing up. If that <laughs> makes any sense, you know, I'm, I'm no spring chicken, you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like the, the playing, like, I, I don't know what it is that just what I call it. Let me put it to you this way. I was getting into a lot. Like I do long drive training every so often to get my swing speed back up because if I, if I get too relaxed, I'll lose all my distance. I don't know what's up with that, but sometimes I start to get a little bit wild off the tee and that's, that's the killer for me. And I I'll stand over a drive and I'll be thinking, Oh, I'm going to crank this three, whatever. And I call it a suicide swing where I'll pull the trigger and I'm not committed to anything. I'm just, committed to swinging as hard as I can. And usually disaster follows. And um, I've done that. Just, it's just the craziest thing, you know? Um, And now I'm I'm much more concerned about trying to hit it in the fairway. Even if it's not a bomb, if it's whatever, I'm just not likely to get to have a bad number if I'm in the fairway. You know, it's like I hit I hit a couple drives today that I wasn't happy with and I had five irons into the green and I birdied both those holes, you know. It's like it's not the end of the world, but it would be the end of the world if I pulled it into the water, you know. So that's the again, it's one of those things like get out of your own way and just you know, I, I played uh last Friday and, and hit a bunch of three woods on a course I'd never seen before. Simply because of the fact I was like, well, I can see the 150 stake. Just hit it to there and you're good. You know, how much trouble can you get in? Yeah, I think especially as someone who over the past couple of years has really 
focused on distance because I thought that was my missing link, right? Like everyone talked about distance. Everyone said, you got to hit it this far. And if you don't hit it this far, you can't compete, yada, yada, down the line. And you start to realize when you do start hitting it, you know, further than maybe 290 on average, um, you realize that you really don't need that distance a lot. And more often than not, it can actually get you in more trouble than what it's worth. I think you said a massive thing there that I've also realized in my own game is if I can see the 150, chances are I don't need to hit it much past that to really be in play anyway. And when you talk about kind of things that really get, I guess, you know, the big difference between breaking 80 and not breaking 80 is making those suicide swings. And for me, for the longest time, the suicide swing was the driver off the tee when I really didn't never needed it. Isn't that funny? Um, you know, I do believe that, uh, like I, I love, the PGA. We love these guys. They're, they're superheroes, you know, and they're being tested against each other and they, they're, you know, they're being asked to hit sometimes, you know, am I going to hit a 290 shot or am I going to try and hit it 340 and clear those bunkers? Mm -hmm. That's what separates the, the very finest players in the world from each other. But for me, I'm not playing to make, make a living in, you know, competition. You know, I want to play great golf. I hope that I can compete someday at a pretty high level. Um, but uh, but that's that's not necessary for me. So I, I made a TV show with Bobby Knight, the basketball coach. Mm -hmm. And and he said to me, you know, as like, hey, coach, you're known for being, you know, really tough on your players. And he's like, look, I get these kids that come to me out of high school and they are superstar big men on campus. And, you know, all the girls are chasing them. They're so cool. And then they, they come to me, to my college, and they're playing basketball. And he goes, there's not a kid on that basketball court that's going to play in the NBA. And, I mean, they're amazing basketball players, right? Mm -hmm. but, he's, but he's right. And he goes, I've got four years to turn these kids into men. And so every good coach that I've ever had is intolerant of lack of focus, sloppy play, and a lack of commitment. You know, so so that's the thing is like that's that's what we have to do is just learn to stay focused, learn to be committed, learn to not play sloppy, you know, and if you take it into competition, then you can refine that even further. And the level to which these guys refine it is unbelievable. Now, I was watching Kevin Na yesterday. I don't know if you caught any of that. I did. That was so, so Kevin Na hits it kind of like around, you know, I, around like I hit it. You know, mm -hmm. something like now I think his average is probably higher because he hits it pure more often. But but he's not a bomber like mm -hmm. 284, something like that off the tee. He made eight birdies in a row. Uh, yeah, incredible. I mean, you don't have to hit it that far. But if you can putt and hit a good solid short iron, you can make tons of birdies. You know, and so. I think we see that a lot too, you know, obviously they play some of these courses down the stretch and especially at major championships that get a little gargantuan when you start talking about layouts, but that for them, I would say average, a lot of these regular week to week tour stops offer the mid to even shorter distance hitters an opportunity to go compete. Um, it, it's amazing to me when you look at guys like Kevin Na and 
Um, I mean, even down the line, a Kevin Kisner that wins, you know, more often than not, or at least finds himself comp- competing throughout the year. Um, guys like that that average that like 280 um, and, and find ways to win are, are pretty incredible when when the the media and the the hype is all the the bombers and the gouging of, of all these golf courses. So um, see, seeing guys like Kevin Na find the winner's circle, uh, <laughs> even if it was more of a modified event, is, is always fun to see, especially when they're making that many birdies. I'm a big fan of Kisner. You know, I think he's super cool. He's got a great personality. He's funny as hell. And, you know, but he, he brings it, you know, like he's not afraid of anybody. Well, that's what those guys have to have when they're, I would say behind the eight ball, when it comes to distance is a little bit of fire underneath the hood. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's certainly, I think um, it's one of the things that tiger, I'm actually a little, I'm so such a big tiger woods fan. I had quit golfing. And it was Tiger Woods when he came back and won the Masters by 12 when I decided to pick the game back up. He inspired me to pick the game back up again. And, uh, you know, he's made comments about like, you know, look, I don't have the firepower that I once did. You know, JT's hitting it so much farther than me and everything else. But I hope he can find that Ben Hogan thing that Hogan did after his accident because he was very clear. He said, I never hit the ball anything close after the accident like I did before. You know, Hogan, you know, he he was just plastering the ball before the accident, yet he won six majors after the accident on a limited schedule. So I've talked to people that knew Ben Hogan about this, and I've wondered about it. And, um, you know, I I think that Ben Hogan probably had – um, say, say you're hitting a seven iron and you can hit it anywhere from say 165 to 175, maybe after his accident, it would, he would hit it between 158 and 164. Like maybe it was a little shorter, but it was a tighter miss, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason, he was unbeatable in those tournaments after the accident. He was his, his top, I mean, his finishes were so high, but this is another thing that I think is, is um, interesting about that is Tiger and these guys, you know, talk about getting out of your own way. You know, Tiger's famous for the nine shot drill, you know, low draw, middle draw, high draw, low, middle, high straight, low, middle cut. And that's, that's great. He's, he's the greatest golfer ever, but Hogan said there's only four shots, low draw, high draw, low cut, high cut. If you can just move the ball in those four windows, you can hit any green, any, you can do whatever you need to do. You don't, you don't have to hit nine shots. And, and Hogan said, when I hit a straight ball, it's an accident. Well, and I think as you look back at the, at the time and the equipment too, those guys hated the straight ball because it was almost impossible to hit that equipment dead straight. It was much easier to work a ball back then, which which is just a, a great conversation for maybe another podcast with you to talk about the the incredible differences of equipment and how great Hogan was. Um, you brought a conversation to the table that I don't even think we expected to touch on was the comparisons now between a Tiger Woods and a Ben Hogan of, of just the post-accident era, I guess you could call it now. Um, when you talk about Hogan winning six majors after the accident – 
and, and how really unbeatable he was. It brings a conversation to the table that is, what, what, what can we maybe expect, you being a big Tiger fan yourself, what can we expect from Tiger you know, post-accident? And, and how soon do we think we maybe can even see him, maybe not even a major, but just putting a win on the board? Okay, so let, let me tell you how, because hmm. I care about this so much. Can Tiger hit it as far as Kevin Knopf? Now? Yes, probably. Yeah, I'd absolutely. have to say yes, absolutely. I, I would too. Who's the best iron player you've ever seen in your life? Before Colin Morikawa, probably Tiger <laughs> yeah. Woods. I'd, I'd say Tiger Woods. Yeah. He's, and they asked Colin Morikawa, he said, I would trade any part of my game with Tiger Woods. So the accident shouldn't affect his short game. Who's the greatest short game player you've ever seen? The greatest putter and short game player I've ever seen is Tiger Woods when he's on. Yeah. He's going to no, win. No argument he's gonna for me. He's going to win <laughs> again. I'm telling you. Yeah. Now, the thing that I hope for is um, – and I've now, far be it from me to say, you know, this, but, you know, I just, I just hope that he's, he's – you know, I know he's doing everything – that he, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the yoga over the power lifting. His arms are looking pretty, pretty jacked, you know, which yeah, is, we I, that I, too. He, yeah. he knows what he's doing, but, um, and I know that he's, he's, he's well-versed in flexibility and, and all that stuff. I just, yoga's changed my life in my forties because, um, I ruptured my Achilles when I was 47 and I've, practiced yoga off and on, you know, just as kind of like, a, oh, I'll go take a yoga class. But I've been a regular person in yoga class since I ruptured my Achilles. And talk about changing this. I mean, it's, it's incredible, because what happens in yoga is you get into a stressful position, and you're, you're holding the pose, and it triggers your fight or flight response, it triggers your like, you know, oh my God, I, how am I going to be able to deal with this? Like you start stressing out and you learn how to regulate your heartbeat, breathing, everything else. And uh, it's, it's changed me. And, and I'm so glad that I, I've, you know, made it a part of my life. And, uh, you know, if I had to choose between powerlifting and yoga for golf, I'd a hundred percent go yoga. And when I asked Gary Player about it, whose son is a yoga teacher, he said, oh, if I had to do it all over again, I'd have a full-time yoga man with me on tour every day. And, um, you know, the point of it is, is like Tiger's got enough speed. He's got, he's got the entire game. But the thing is, when he talks about not being able to keep up with JT or, or whoever these bombers are, A, he doesn't need to. And B, isn't that his ego kind of talking? Because he's used to kicking everybody's ass with distance. That's the one concern. Hogan had to let that go. Yeah, that's the one concern is he has held that ego, I think, so close to his chest for so long of being the most powerful, being the most dominant from a physique aspect. Like, I mean, it's just it's been him against the world, it seems like, from a a basically beat you into the ground standpoint that he, he's got, I, I think it's going to be tough, but he's going to have to let that go for a maybe eight to 10 year period. I think he can play 10 more years if he's smart about it. Um, if yeah, he goes back into the powering 
over everybody mode. It might not be a, a long, t- a long. Do you remember when when he came back from the umpteenth back surgery, and it's like Tiger Woods just posted 129 mile an hour swing speed. That's the fastest year, <laughs> yeah. and it's like that. That's great, but it's not necessary. Mm-mm. That that's no, the only that's the only thing that I'm saying is is like you know. He, he's got so many more weapons than power and Hogan lost his power. Hogan was, wasn't a big guy, but he was way shorter after the accident, but he was more precise and, and he kind of killing people. It kind of goes back to the conversation earlier. We were discussing about how your rounds were going instead of taking the three wood out, going seven iron wedge in the par fives. Tiger does that on tour. Like, yes, yeah, some of those guys would be make eagles, but if he can make himself have guaranteed birdies on all the par fives, that's four under right there. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's a risk reward element to it, and I'll tell you a great story from Freddie Couples. He was uh, playing with Raymond Floyd, who's one of the the great legends of the game, and Freddie's boom boom. He's long. And, and Ray Floyd asked him, he's like, so you're, you're, you're going for this green and two again. He's like, yeah, why not? You know, I don't think there's, there's too much trouble I can get into or whatever. He's like, so what, what do you hope to get out of this? And he said, I hope to get an Eagle. <laughs> and he asked Freddie Couples, he said, how many Eagles you make on, on tour this year? And he's like, I, I don't maybe three four and something like that he's like out of all your rounds you've been playing this way you've only pulled it off a few times he's you know the the point being is like you know why take a bazooka when a 22 will do the job (laughs) yeah so that's that's kind of that's just you know that's just kind of the thing i mean it's like I'll, I'll tell you one of the things I thought was so fantastic was when Tiger won the Masters in 2019. First of all, how insane is that? I mean, I, my brain was melting. When you had people, whether it was there or even, you know, watching it on TV, grown men in their 40s saying, man, that just brought me to tears. You know, the moment was special. It, it was so crazy. But I, to me, it, it all came down to number 12. You know, it was, uh, my gosh, I didn't think, I I didn't think Molinari was going to fade at all. He looked so strong on the front nine. He was just fantastic. But Tiger was just sitting there chomping his gum, watching person after person go at the pin and hit it in the water. So some like five out of the last seven guys dunked it. Yeah. Even the group in front of him, I think it was two out of three that put it. Yeah. It was like everybody was putting it in the water and where did Tiger go? 30 feet left over the bunker where Jack always hit it. Right. Yep. Yep. And, and he, he just held that. That's, that's the kind of golf that I'm saying. That wasn't a 350 yard drive. It was a 155 yard shot that won him the masters. Shut up.